At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, it is our privilege to partner with local churches both in the United States and around the world in training men for the gospel ministry. If your church supports CBTS with $200 a month and a commitment to pray for us, any student in your church can attend CBTS tuition-free. To learn more about how you can partner with us in providing informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, visit cbtseminary.org. You have tuned in to the podcast of the Man of God Network. The Man of God Network is an outreach of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. This is the voice of the narrated Puritan. Our new website is at puritanaudiobooks.com. The following title is from Jonathan Edwards. A personal narrative. I had a variety of concerns and exercises about my soul from my childhood but had two more remarkable seasons of awakening before I met with that change by which I was brought to those new dispositions and that new sense of things that I have since had. The first time when I was a boy, some years before I went to college, at a time of remarkable awakening in my father's congregation, I was in very much affected for many months and concerned about the things of religion and my soul salvation was abundant in duties. I used to pray five times a day in secret and to spend much time in religious talk with other boys and used to meet with them to pray together. I experienced I know not what kind of delight in religion. My mind was much engaged in it and had much self-righteous pleasure, and it was my delight to abound in religious duties. I joined together with some of my schoolmates and built a booth in a swamp, in a very retired spot for a place of prayer. And besides, I had particular secret places of my own in the woods, where I used to retire by myself and was from time to time much affected. My affection seemed to be lively and easily moved, and I seemed to be in my element when engaged in religious duties. And I am ready to think many are deceived with such affections and such a kind of delight as I then had in religion, and mistake it for grace. But in the process of time, my convictions and affections wore off, and I entirely lost all those affections and delights and left off secret prayer, at least as to any constant performance of it, and returned like a dog to his vomit, and went on in the ways of sin. Indeed, I was at times very uneasy, especially towards the latter part of my time at college, when it pleased God to seize me with a pleurisy, which he brought me nigh to the grave and shook me over the pit of hell. And yet it was not long after my recovery before I fell again into my old ways of sin. But God would not allow me to go on with any quietness. I had great and violent inward struggles until after many conflicts with wicked inclinations repeated resolutions and bonds that I laid myself under by a kind of vow to God. I was brought wholly to break off all former wicked ways and all ways of known outward sin and to apply myself to seek salvation and practice many religious duties, but without that kind of affection and delight which I had formerly experienced. My concern now wrought more by inward struggles and conflicts and self-reflections. But yet it seems to me I sought after a miserable manner, which has made me sometimes sense to question whether it ever issued in that which was saving, being ready to doubt whether such miserable seeking ever succeeded. 
I was indeed brought to seek salvation in a manner that I never was before. I felt a spirit to part with all things in the world for an interest in Christ. My concern continued and prevailed with many exercising thoughts and inward struggles, but yet it never seemed to be proper to express that concern by the name of terror. From my childhood up, my mind had been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty and choosing whom he would to eternal life and rejecting whom he pleased, leaving them eternally to perish and be everlastingly tormented in hell. It used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me. But I remember the time very well when I seemed to be convinced and fully satisfied as to the sovereignty of God and his justice and thus eternally disposing of men according to his sovereign pleasure, but never could give an account how or by what means I was thus convinced, not in the least imagining at the time, nor a long time after, that there was any extraordinary influence of God's Spirit in it, but only that now I saw further and my reason apprehended the justice and reasonableness of it. However, my mind rested in it, and it put an end to all those cavils and objections. And there has been a wonderful alteration in my mind in respect to the doctrine of God's sovereignty from that day to this, so that I scarce ever have found so much as a rising of an objection against it, in the most absolute sense, in God's showing mercy to whom he will show mercy, and hardening whom he will." God's absolute sovereignty and justice with respect to salvation and damnation is what my mind seemed to rest assured of. As much as of anything that I see with my eyes, at least it is so at times. But I have often, since that first conviction, had quite another kind of sense of God's sovereignty than I then had. I have often since had not only a conviction, but a lightful conviction. The doctrine has very often appeared exceeding pleasant, bright, and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God, but my first conviction was not so. The first instance that I remember of that sort of inward sweet delight in God and divine things that I have lived much in since was on reading those words in 1 Timothy 1, 17. Now unto the king eternal, Immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. As I read the words, there came into my soul, and as it were, diffused through it, a sense of the glory of the divine being, a new sense, quite different from anything that I'd ever experienced before. Never any words of Scripture seemed to me as those words did. I thought with myself how excellent a being that was and how happy I should be if I might enjoy God and be wrapped up to him in heaven and be as it were swallowed up in him forever. I kept saying, and as it were singing over those words of scripture to myself, and went to pray to God that I might enjoy him and prayed in a manner quite different from what I used to do with a new sort of affection. But it never came into my thought that there was anything spiritual or of a saving nature in this. From about that time, I began to have a new kind of apprehension and idea of Christ and the work of redemption and the glorious way of salvation by him. An inward sweet sense of these things at times came into my heart, and my soul was led away in pleasant views and contemplations of them. 
and my mind was greatly engaged to spend my time in reading and meditating on Christ, on the beauty and excellency of his person and the lovely way of salvation by free grace in him. I found no book so delightful to me as those that treated of these subjects. Those words in Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 1, used to be abundantly with me. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. The words seem to me sweetly to represent the loveliness and beauty of Jesus Christ. The whole book of Canticles used to be pleasant to me, and I used to be much in reading it about that time, and found from time to time an inward sweetness that would carry me away in my contemplations. This I know not how to express otherwise, and by a calm, sweet abstraction of soul from all the concerns of this world, and sometimes a kind of vision or fixed idea and imagination of being alone in the mountains or some solitary wilderness, far away from all mankind, sweetly conversing with Christ and wrapped and swallowed up in God. The sense I had of divine things would often, of a sudden, kindle up, as it were, a sweet burning in my heart, an ardor of soul that I knew not how to express, not long after I first began to experience these things, I gave an account to my father of some things that had passed in my mind. I was pretty much affected by the discourse we had together, and when it was ended, I walked abroad alone in a solitary place in my father's pasture for contemplation. And as I was walking there and looking up on the sky and clouds, there came into my mind so sweet a sense of the glorious majesty and grace of God that I know not how to express. I seemed to see them both in a sweet conjunction, majesty and meekness together. It was a sweet and gentle and holy majesty and also a majestic meekness, an awful sweetness, a high and great and holy gentleness." After this, my sense of divine things gradually increased and became more and more lively and had more of that inward sweetness. The appearance of everything was altered. There seemed to be, as it were, a calm, sweet cast or appearance of divine glory in almost everything. God's excellency, his wisdom, purity, and love seemed to appear in everything, in the sun, the moon, and the stars, in the clouds, and blue sky in the grass, flowers, trees, and the water, and in all nature, which used greatly to fix my mind. I often used to sit and view the moon for continuance, and in the day spent much time in viewing the clouds and sky to behold the sweet glory of God in these things, in the meantime singing forth with a low voice my contemplations of the Creator and Redeemer. And scarce anything among all the works of nature was so sweet to me as thunder and lightning, Formerly, nothing had been so terrible to me. Before, I used to be uncommonly terrified with thunder, and to be struck with terror when I saw a thunderstorm rising. But now, on the contrary, it rejoiced me. I felt God, so to speak, at the first appearance of a thunderstorm, and used to take the opportunity at such times to fix myself in order to view the clouds, and see the lightnings play, and hear the majestic and awful voice of God thunder, which oftentimes was exceedingly entertaining, leading me to sweet contemplations of my great and glorious God. While thus engaged, it always seemed natural to me to sing or chant from my meditations, or to speak my thoughts and soliloquies with a singing voice. 
I felt then great satisfaction as to my good state. But that did not content me. I had vehement longings of soul after God and Christ, and after more holiness, wherewith my heart seemed to be full and ready to break, which often brought to my mind the words of the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 28, My soul breaks for the longing it has. And I often felt a mourning and lamenting in my heart that I not turn to God sooner, that I might have had more time to grow in grace. My mind was greatly fixed on divine things, almost perpetually in the contemplation of them. I spent most of my time in thinking of divine things year after year, often walking alone in the woods in solitary places for meditation, soliloquy, and prayer, in converse with God. And it was always my manner at such times to sing forth my contemplations. I was almost continually in ejaculatory prayer wherever I was. Prayer seemed to be natural to me as a breath by which the inward burnings of my heart had vent. The delights which I now felt and the things of religion were of an exceeding different kind from those before mentioned that I had when I was a boy, and what I then had no more notion of than one born blind has a pleasure in beautiful colors. They were of a more inward, pure, soul-animating and refreshing nature. Those former delights never reached the heart and did not arise from any sight of the divine excellency of the things of God or any taste of the soul-satisfying and life-giving good there is in them. My sense of divine things seemed gradually to increase until I went to preach at New York, which is about a year and a half after they began. And while I was there, I felt them very sensibly in a much higher degree than I had done before. My longings after God and holiness were much increased. Pure and humble, holy and heavenly Christianity appeared exceeding amiable to me. I felt a burning desire to be in everything a complete Christian and conform to the blessed image of Christ, and that I might live in all things according to the pure, sweet, and blessed rules of the gospel. I had an eager thirsting after progress in these things, which put me upon pursuing and pressing after them. It was my continual strife day and night and constant inquiry how I should be more holy and live more holily, and more becoming a child of God and a disciple of Christ. I now sought an increase of grace and holiness and a holy life with much more earnestness than ever I sought grace before I had it. I used to be continually examining myself and studying and contriving for likely ways and means how I should live holily with far greater diligence and earnestness than ever I pursued anything in my life, but yet with too great a dependence on my own strength, which afterwards proved a great snare to me. My experience had not then taught me, as it has done since, my extreme feebleness and impotence every manner of way and the bottomless depths of secret corruption and deceit there was in my heart. However, I went on with my eager pursuit after more holiness and conformity to Christ. The heaven I desired was a heaven of holiness, to be with God and to spend my eternity in divine love and holy communion with Christ. My mind was very much taken up with contemplations on heaven and the enjoyments there, and living there in perfect holiness, humility, and love. And it used at that time to appear a great part of the happiness of heaven, dared the saints could express their love to Christ. It appeared to me a great clog and burden that what I felt within I could not express as I desired. 
The inward ardor of my soul seemed to be hindered and pent up and could not freely flame out as it would. I used often to think how in heaven this principle should freely and fully vent and express itself. Heaven appeared exceedingly delightful as a world of love and that all happiness consisted in living in pure, humble, heavenly, divine love. I remember the thoughts I used then to have of holiness and said sometimes to myself, I do certainly know that I love holiness such as the gospel prescribes. It appeared to me that there was nothing in it but what was ravishingly lovely in highest beauty and amiableness, a divine beauty, far purer than anything here upon earth, and that everything else was like mire and defilement in comparison of it. Holiness, as I then wrote down some of my contemplations on it, appeared to me to be of a sweet, pleasant, charming, serene, and calm nature, which brought an inexpressible purity, brightness, peacefulness, and ravishment to the soul. In other words, that it made the soul like a field or garden of God, with all manner of pleasant flowers, all pleasant, delightful, and undisturbed, enjoying a sweet calm and the gentle, vivifying beams of the sun." The soul of a true Christian, as I then wrote in my meditations, appeared like such a little white flower, as we see in the spring of the years, low and humble on the ground, opening its bosom to receive the pleasant beams of the sun's glory, rejoicing as it were in a calm rapture, diffusing around a sweet flagrancy, standing peacefully and lovingly in the midst of other flowers round about it, all in like manner opening their bosoms to drink in the light of the sun. There was no part of creature holiness that I had so great a sense of its loveliness as humility, brokenness of heart, and poverty of spirit. And there was nothing that I so earnestly longed for. My heart panted after this to lie low before God as in the dust, that I might be nothing, and that God might be all, that I might become as a little child. While at New York, I was sometimes much affected with reflections of my past life, considering how late it was before I began to be truly religious and how wickedly I lived until then, and once so as to weep abundantly and for a considerable time together. While at New York, I was sometimes much affected with reflections of my past life, considering how late it was before I began to be truly religious, and how wickedly I had lived till then, and once so as to weep abundantly and for a considerable time together. On January 12th, 1723, I made a solemn dedication of myself to God and wrote it down, giving up myself and all that I had to God, to be for the future in no respect my own, to act as one that had no right to himself in any respect, and solemnly vowed to take God for my whole portion and felicity, looking on nothing else as any part of my happiness, nor acting as if it were, and as law for the constant rule of my obedience, engaging a fight with all my might against the world, the flesh, and the devil, to the end of my life. But I have reason to be infinitely humbled when I consider how much I have failed of answering my obligation. I had then abundance of sweet religious conversation in the family where I lived, with Mr. John Smith, and his pious mother. My heart was knit in affection to those in whom were appearances of true piety, and I could bear the thoughts of no other companions but such as were holy and the disciples of the blessed Jesus. I had great longings for the advancement of Christ's kingdom in the world, 
and my secret prayer used to be in great part taken up in praying for it. If I heard the least hint of anything that happened in any part of the world, that appeared in some respect or other to have a favorable aspect on the interests of Christ's kingdom, my soul eagerly caught at it, and it would much animate and refresh me. I used to be eager to read public newsletters mainly for that end, to see if I could not find some news favorable to the interest of religion in the world. I very frequently used to retire into a solitary place on the banks of the Hudson River, at some distance from the city for contemplation on divine things, and secret converse with God, and I had many sweet hours there. Sometimes Mr. Smith and I walked there together to converse on the things of God, and our conversation used to turn much on the advancement of Christ's kingdom in the world and the glory of things that God would accomplish for his church in the latter days. I have then, and at other times, the greatest delight in the Holy Scriptures of any book whatsoever. Oftentimes in reading it, every word seemed to touch my heart. I felt a harmony between something in my heart and those sweet and powerful words. I seemed often to see so much light exhibited by every sentence, and such a refreshing food communicated that I could not get along in reading, often dwelling long on one sentence to see the wonders contained in it, and yet almost every sentence seemed to be full of wonders. I came away from New York in the month of April of 1723 and had a most bitter parting with Madam Smith and her son. My heart seemed to sink within me at leaving the family and city where I had enjoyed so many sweet and pleasant days. I went from New York to Westerfield by water, and as I sailed away, I kept sight of the city as long as I could. However, that night after this sorrowful parting, I was greatly comforted in God at Westchester, where we went ashore to lodge, and had a pleasant time of it all the voyage to Saybrook. It was sweet to me to think of meeting dear Christians in heaven, where we should never part any more. At Saybrook, we went ashore to lodge on Saturday, and there kept the Sabbath, where had a sweet and refreshing season walking alone in the fields. After I came home to Windsor, I remained much in a like frame of mind as when at New York. Only sometimes I felt my heart ready to sink with the thoughts of my friends at New York. My support was in contemplations on the heavenly state, as I find in my diary of May 1st, 1723. It was a comfort to think of that state, where there is fullness of joy, where reigns heavenly calm and delightful love without alloy, where there are continually the dearest expressions of this love, where is the enjoyment of the persons loved without ever parting, where those persons who appear so lovely in this world will really be inexpressibly more lovely and full of love to us. And how sweetly will the mutual lovers join together to sing the praises of God and the Lamb? How will it fill us with joy to think that this enjoyment, these sweet exercises, will never cease but will last to all eternity? I continued much in the same frame in the general as when I went to New York until I went to New Haven as tutor of the college, particularly once at Bolton on a journey from Boston while walking out alone in the fields. After I went to New Haven, I sunk in religion, my mind being diverted from my eager pursuits after holiness by some affairs that greatly perplexed and distracted my thoughts. In September of 1725, I was taken ill at New Haven 
and while endeavoring to go home to Windsor, was so ill at the North Village that I could go no further, where I lay sick for about a quarter of a year. In this sickness, God was pleased to visit me again with the sweet influences of his spirit. My mind was greatly engaged there on divine and pleasant contemplations and longings of soul. I observed that those who watched with me would often be looking out wistfully for the morning, which brought to my mind those words of the psalmist, in which my soul with delight made its own language. My soul waits for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. And when the light of day came in at the window, it refreshed my soul. From one morning to another, it seemed to be some image of the light of God's glory. I remember about that time I used greatly to long for the conversion of some that I was concerned with. I could gladly honor them and with delight be a servant to them and lie at their feet if they were but truly holy. But some time after this, I was again greatly diverted with some temporal concerns that exceedingly took up my thoughts greatly to the wounding of my soul and went on through various exercises that it would be tedious to relate which gave me much more experience of my own heart than I ever had before. Since I came to this town, Northampton, I have often had sweet complacency in God, in views of his glorious perfections and the excellency of Jesus Christ. God has appeared to me a glorious and lovely being, chiefly on account of his holiness. The holiness of God has always appeared to me the most lovely of all his attributes, the doctrines of God's absolute sovereignty and free grace, and show in mercy to whom he would show mercy, and man's absolute dependence on the operations of God's Holy Spirit, have very often appeared to me as sweet and glorious doctrines. These doctrines have been much my delight. God's sovereignty has ever appeared to me great part of his glory. It has often been my delight to approach God and adore him, as a sovereign God, and ask sovereign mercy of him. Once as I rode out into the woods for my health in 1737, having alighted from my horse in a retired place, as my manner commonly has been, to walk for divine contemplation and prayer, I had a view that for me was extraordinary, of the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man, and his wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love and meek and gentle condescension, this grace that appeared so calm and sweet appeared also great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent, with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception, which continued as near as I can judge about an hour, which kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. I felt an ardency of soul to be what I know not otherwise how to express, emptied and annihilated, to lie in the dust and to be full of Christ alone, to love him with a holy and pure love, to trust in him, to live upon him, to serve and follow him, and to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a divine and heavenly purity. I have several other times had views very much of the same nature and which have had the same effects. Often since I lived in this town, I have had very affecting views of my own sinfulness and vileness, very frequently to such a degree as to hold me in a kind of a loud weeping, sometimes for a considerable time together, so that I have often been forced to shut myself up. I have had a vastly greater sense of my own wickedness and the badness of my heart than ever I had before my conversion. 
It has often appeared to me that if God should mark iniquity against me, I should appear the very worst of all mankind. If all that have been since the beginning of the world to this time, and that I should have by far the lowest place in hell, when others that have come to talk with me about their soul's concerns have expressed the sense that they have had of their own wickedness by saying that it seemed to them that they were as bad as the devil himself. I thought their expression seemed exceeding faint and feeble to represent my wickedness. My wickedness as I am in myself has long appeared to me perfectly ineffable and swallowing up all thought and imagination like an infinite deluge or mountain over my head. I know not how to express better what my sins appear to me to be than by heaping infinite upon infinite and multiplying infinite by infinite. Very often for these many years these expressions were in my mind and in my mouth, infinite upon infinite, infinite upon infinite. When I look into my heart and take a view of my wickedness, it looks like an abyss infinitely deeper than hell. And it appears to me that were it not for free grace, exalted and raised up to the infinite height of all the fullness and glory of the great Jehovah, and the arm of his power and grace stretched forth in all the majesty of his power, in all the glory of his sovereignty, I should appear sunk down in my sins, below hell itself, far beyond the sight of everything but the eye of sovereign grace that can pierce even down to such a depth. Yet it seems to me that my conviction of sin is exceeding small and faint. It is enough to amaze me that I have no more sense of my sin. I know certainly that I have very little sense of my sinfulness. When I have had turns of weeping and crying for my sins, I thought I knew at the time that my repentance was nothing to my sin. I have greatly longed of late for a broken heart and to lie low before God. And when I ask for humility, I cannot bear the thought of being no more humble than other Christians. It seems to me that though their degrees of humility may be suitable for them, yet it would be a vile self-exaltation in me not to be the lowest in humility of all mankind. Others speak of their longing to be humbled to the dust. That may be a proper expression for them, but I always think of myself that I ought and it is an expression that has long been natural for me to use in prayer to lie infinitely low before God. And it is affecting to think how ignorant I was when a young Christian of the bottomless, infinite depths of wickedness, pride, hypocrisy, and deceit left in my heart. I have a much greater sense of my universal exceeding dependence on God's grace and strength and mere good pleasure of late that I use formerly to have and have experienced more of an abhorrence of my own righteousness. The very thought of any joy arising in me on any consideration of my own amiableness, performances, or experiences, or any goodness of heart or life is nauseous and detestable to me. And yet I am greatly afflicted with a proud and self-righteous spirit, much more sensibly than I used to be formerly. I see that serpent rising and putting forth its head continually, everywhere, all around me. Personal Narrative, Jonathan Edwards.